Well, thank you for coming out on a dark and stormy night. Um, <laughs> I'm going to read a couple of dark and stormy pieces. Um, one is from my original rooted, rooted place, which is Chicago, and the other is from Montana, where I've lived uh, since 1964. So uh, without further ado, we'll get going. This first piece is an essay that was published in uh, Triquarterly several years ago, and it's called A Mother's House. My mother, Helen Beck Deutsch, died on March 28, 2007, one day short of her 101st birthday. She did not go easily. Her journey had been a long one, starting in a small Transylvania city and ending at Weiss Hospital on Chicago's north side in the neighborhood where she had lived off and on for some 70 years. The windows in her hospital room looked east toward Lake Michigan. From her arrival in Chicago in 1937 to her last day on earth, she insisted on living in view of this great lake, her solace and her escape. The city was another matter. I hate this place, she told my father, her first season in the Windy City. It is ugly and dirty. The month was February. Soot-crusted snow rose in piles from drab streets. Icy winds off the lake blew candy wrappers into garbage-strewn gutters. Huddled in their overcoats, people rushed to streetcars and buses. And to my cosmopolitan mother, they seemed gruff and plain. In time, she would come to admire the arts and architecture, the lakeside parks, and postmodern glories of Chicago's glittering skyline. But the strong-armed prairie metropolis could never be her spiritual home. That was Paris, where she had romanced and married, and where I was born, golden Paris, the city of her heart. Out her hospital windows, my mother could see choppy waters, a horizon of clouds. If her window had faced the opposite direction, she would have looked past pale green budding trees to the three-story apartment houses of Lakeside Place. This is the street where she had lived with her husband and mother and given birth to my sisters. It was where she witnessed the end of the Great Depression, worked as a photographer with my father while World War II ran its course, and emerged into the prosperous aftermath of war. My sisters Kathy and Carol had flown to mom's bedside from Boston and San Francisco. I arrived from Montana. We had come to help her through the ordeal of letting go as we had done 10 years before during our fi father's final weeks. As families run, ours is a close one, but there is nothing like the impending death of a parent to bring siblings together. It doesn't matter that I have entered, well entered, my 70s, and my sisters are not far behind. We tease, giggle, squabble, and jockey for dominance as always. We are children again, and children no more, for now we must become our own mothers. Crisis is the glue that binds us, yet crisis never happens on schedule which is my way of saying that none of her children were with our mother during the gasping seconds when pneumonia snuffed her last fighting breaths. Alternative narratives play over and over in my imagination as if mind has the power to change what actually happened. What if I had stayed in her room that night? What if we all had stayed? 
We would have made the hospice nurse give mom morphine and she would not have had to struggle, not been in pain. We would have taken stations at her bed. I see Carol holding a cold compress to her forehead, Kathy massaging her feet. I would lift a cup of ice water to her lips. Most important, we have taken turns holding her hand. Holding hands, the thought brings me near to tears. Like us, our mother was absent at the death of her 93-year-old mother. I wanted to be there to hold Grandma's hand, Mom would tell one or the other of us, seemingly out of the blue. She was obsessed with guilt, believing she had betrayed her mother. But guilt was not the only thing that haunted her. There was fear. I think Mother was telling us how much she feared death, especially dying alone. When her time came, she wanted her daughters by her side. She wanted someone she loved to be holding her hand. On mom's last night around midnight, my sisters and I took a taxi back from the hospital to her apartment in the Breakers, a skyscraping senior residence where she had lived for the past 10 years. At three, in the, we were exhausted, wanting no more than a few hours of sleep. At three in the morning, the telephone rang. Carol, asleep in the living room couch, jumped to get it. We all jumped. We knew this was the crisis. I picked up the extension in Mom's bedroom. Iris, the caretaker we had hired to watch over her that night, spoke in a near whisper. We've got a problem, she said. What's wrong, asked Carol. The line went silent. We held our breaths. I think your mother's dead. You think she's dead, I interjected. She was trying to take that oxygen mask off, you know, the one with the medicine. She couldn't get her breath. Her poor chest rose up a couple of times, and then it just stopped. I think her heart quit. I'm sorry, Iris sobbed. I didn't know what to do. When we rushed into our mother's hospital room half an hour later, nothing had been done to ease the shock of death. Mom lay on her side, uncovered, her hospital gown in a tangle. She was tiny on the long bed, and her mouth gaped, toothless, and in the posture of agony. We wept to see her so. We wept for the last loss of the woman who had given us life and cared for us and our babies, who, and who had become our burden. Taking care of this mother was integral to who we had become now that our own children were grown, and the caring, although difficult, was a kind of joy. Now she was gone. We wept for ourselves, and we wept because there had been no proper goodbyes. The last word our mother had spoken to us was Tylenol. She had looked up with pleading red-rimmed eyes and said, Tylenol. This was the only remedy she believed could ease her pain. The doctor just gave you some, said Carol. We can't give you any more. Our mother frowned and turned away. She was angry to the point of fury. That afternoon, her doctor had told her there was nothing more he could do. We had put her under hospice care and were planning to bring her home next morning. She knew what that meant. Hospitals were where you went to get cured. Going home was defeat. We had told her a hospital bed would be delivered to her bedroom. There would be oxygen and breathing machines, tranquilizers and morphine. You will be more comfortable at home, we said. Home, Mom repeated in a hoarse, croaking voice. I have no home. Aside from Tylenol, those are the last words I remember her saying. She turned her back on us because she was furious. But in turning away, our mother was also keeping a promise. 
I'm going to be rude to the girls, Mother had confided to her caregiver the night before the last night. That way they won't be sad when I'm gone. True to her word, perverse and original as ever, she had been rude. The hospice nurse and an orderly shooed us into the hall while they washed and dressed our mother. When we entered her room for our final farewells, mom lay on her back in a blue gown. Her false teeth had been put back, her eyes were shut, her white hair had been combed into waves, her brow was smooth and her hands were clasped on her stomach. She looked younger, unwrinkled, serene. Death had done what no amount of creams or toners could do. Death, the ultimate beauty shop. Looks mattered inordinately to my mother. She would have loved seeing herself so calm and beautiful. It is easy to imagine her looking down from somewhere nearby as Carol and Kat and I mourned and told stories and repeated her favorite Hungarian jokes. I felt her presence not quite gone from the room, a spirit anything but angelic, laughing with and at her daughter's white-haired ourselves. Mom's high spirits had surfaced only once while I was with her those last two days, when my son Andrew came to see her. If anyone could make her smile, it would be Andrew. He brought a video of his baby daughter, Tilly. Mom loves babies. Kick, kick, she said to the video as the nine-month-old kicked her plump legs. She wants it, she chuckled, as Tilly crawled toward the pacifier I held out to her in the moving picture. I'd like to roll on the floor with her, Mom explained. She can roll all over me, roll, but not rule. We laughed. She laughed, her last joke. A few minutes later, as she slipped into ambient lace sleep, Mom mumbled, clean shirt, nice. Then, make sure you bring out the vegetables, good, fresh vegetables. What was she planning, I wonder? A family feast? Everyone clean and dressed for the party. Food, clothes, laughter, especially laughter. Helen Deutsch was her own best audience. She laughed at her favorite stories repeated over and over, and her laughing was contagious. She would roar at some off-color Hungarian saying she'd just translated for us, or at a remark one of her grandkids had said years ago that tickled her funny bone. Bent double, she laughed until tears came, until she gasped for breath. I have struggled to keep that image in memory's eye, but the agony is equally powerful. I guess the two must abide side by side, like life intermingled. Death is always a beginning. Now I am the eldest in our family, although not quite comfortable in the role, and with mom gone, I am the self-designated storyteller. It is easy for writers of a certain age to fall into stories about memory and nostalgia and loss, and I am no exception. But the world we encounter day to day, no matter what age we have come to, is new and present. My mother's death ended the journey we all face those of us who outlive our parents, and it ended the trips to Chicago my sisters and I took, alternating every three months to visit and care for her. I usually flew to Chicago, but on one memorable visit, I decided to drive. My mother was 97 that spring and still vital. I drove across the plains from Montana to Chicago and then to our family's summer cottage in Michigan and back to Montana by a different route. 
The only companion I had on my drive across the plains was a chocolate lab named Bruno, the perfect pal for an aging woman returning to her mother's house. Driving two lanes at 70 miles per hour, barely glimpsing fenced fields and barns and strip malls is a metaphor for the way time races past me, disappearing in the rearview mirror, and yet my heart remains constant. Although life has become more emotionally and strategically complex as family and friends accumulate and disappear, my economic struggles have eased. eased. I have time, means, and opportunities to travel. Travel keeps me alert and alive, but then I get tired. When I come home, I find comfort in solitude, comfort in the company of dogs. I walk with my dogs along familiar roads and into the pine woods above our house. I look out wide windows at our meadow alive with birds and coyotes and deer. I stand under stars in the Rocky Mountain night and imagine infinities. A friend once told me there is a Buddhist word that sounds my, like my name and the meaning of that word is flux. I like that. Stars turn in season. The new moon in a southern sky seems upside down. Electricity is the way nature behaves. When I drove across the plains with Bruno and took my mother to our summer house in the dunes above Lake Michigan, she would stand on the screened porch looking out at the sunset over the lake. Where water meets air, she could see Chicago's skyscrapers etched in miniature. The sky flowed blue and mauve and flaming yellow. My mother stood motionless looking down through oaks and cottonwoods and fragile pine to the sweep of sand and the waters beyond. I see her there still, a small, hunched figure wrapped in a shawl with her back toward me. She has turned her eyes toward the splintered light the sinking disk. She says nothing. Who knows what she is thinking or if she is thinking. We buried mom's ashes next to my father's in a patch of lily of the valley and red columbine on the high dune overlooking Lake Michigan next to the cottage they had shared for more than half a century. A year later, I sit in faraway Montana and think of the union of earth and ash, soul and place that was theirs and is also mine. I look out at our May green meadow, so green it seems artificial, and raise my eyes to the fire-ravaged mountain masked with spring snow. I'm trying to make sense of my mother's story, and my father's story, and my story, of the many-roomed houses we each inhabited. It is an impossible task, all flux. No matter how I try, I cannot see life whole. Experience reinvented will have to suffice. Like everyone, I arrange memories, sensations, and thoughts in stories to define myself and those I love. Then I discover those stories are unstable and changing and filled with surprises, but there is consistency in them, the singular voice. That is how stories work. They must be both startling and predictable like every day is dawn. My mother used to walk the shores below our cottage and collect pieces of beach glass, red, green, amber, translucent white and blue. Their colors were muted by the rasp of sand, their edges rounded by waves. 
She assembled the bits into lampshades and tabletops and oddly concocted mobiles, none beautiful, all distinctly hers. Incidents I fit together from my life, from her life, are like those bits of glass. I toss them helter-skelter into the kaleidoscope that is memory's core. One twist of the lens causes the shards to fragment and repattern. Now I see amber triangles and deep blue holes. Tomorrow there will be butterflies. So if you'll bear with me a little bit more. Uh, now I'm going to read you an essay, essay I read about death. Now I'm going to read about getting old. <laughs> That's what we write about, what we know, right? <laughs> the summer of now. The stones are warm under my bare feet. End of August grass is yellow and crinkly, and grasshoppers bombard my legs like a squadron of tiny airplanes. I have walked this path from kitchen to yard every summer for 38 years, seen my small sons grow into men, and held the tiny trusting hands of granddaughters. But when I looked down the V of Bear Creek's pine-clad canyon to the valley of the Big Blackfoot River, or raised my sights to the scarred ridges of the rattlesnake wilderness, when an easterly breeze riffles my hair long turned from black to white, and the rise of sun warms my cheek, I shiver with pleasure as I always have. The mountain morning glows like a ripe peach, I want to devour it. But it is never forever now. Beyond the constants of dawn and sunset, change attacks stasis from inside and out. This morning I smell change in the texture of air, a tang more bitter than sweet, a coolness of sharper degree, and I see change in the quality of light, the clean white light of summer's end. The trees see it. Shorter days signal the trees to turn inward. Sap has begun its retreat in the tapestry of forest that surrounds our meadow. Leaves of the vine maple are tinged red. Wild currant is yellowing toward brown. Soon we will witness first frost, perhaps snow. But predictable Mars will burn in the southwest tonight, an elbow's length from the half moon, and I will sail the light I was born to, the only season. What does it mean to grow old? Does growth imply movement toward maturity, not over the hill and away from it? It means you're growing wiser, says my son Steve. That's not for me to say, I reply. Do you think I'm wiser? He smiles. I might have smiled in a similar way if my father had asked me the same question, for the answer is both yes and no. Now I'm gonna skip some stuff. Grow old. How do those words fit together? My mind jumps to old growth. Old growth is a forest with big trees, like the forest I am trying to preserve beyond our meadow. There, in a few precious patches, ponderosas, tall and wide, wide girthed with thumb thick layers of reddish bark that interlock like pieces in a picture puzzle create an umbrella of shade called overstory, where sun cannot reach the ground to nourish young trees. 
That's why the big trees stand alone on brushy hillsides, stately and slowly dying. Ponderosas in their clusters, harboring red-tailed hawks and great horned owls who look down with hunger at mice and songbirds, rabbits and squirrels, predatory as we are. Cut them down when they're mature, says the forester, before they rot. But rot is a condition of old growth, I say. We need rot. Hopefully, it will be slow rot, not the disease of beetle infestation that is infecting our forests like an unchecked virus. Slow rot starts in cracks, cracks or lightning strikes or in some rabbit's burrow while the rest of the tree inches skyward. An old tree will grow and rot for dozens of years past maturity, half a century, maybe more. Here is one old fellow I love, a grizzled guy, 200 years old at least, leaning toward the creek. Who knows when gravity will take him down, roots giving way, the great tree falling, the sound like dynamite exploding, shaking the earth, damming the creek, changing its course. Decay will accelerate with years of snow and rain, but the trunk may still be visible a hundred years from now, returning to earth while it nourishes seedlings that thrive in sunlight, opened up in the overstory when the old tree fell. I ask myself why I treasure old growth while the forester wants to cut it down. Certainly, my love is connected to beauty. I stand in filtered green shade, look up to long-needled crowns 200 feet above my head, and find my true dimension. Here, I am a pointless dot in the canvas of nature, and it feels correct to be a small, connected being. Here, even the moose is small, and the bear. They find shelter under the old trees as I do, but what do bears know of beauty as humans conceive of it? Beauty is a side effect. What matters is the shelter. This old growth provides homes for owls and elk and the elusive moose and her new calf who bed down where the grass is bent. There are berry thickets for bears and hollows for coyote dens and thick branches where mountain lions wait to pounce on a large mantle like me or that browsing deer. I stand on top of the cliff above my house and look out at the low mountains that flow in every direction. Most of the big trees in the pine, fir, and larch forests around me have been cut down. The rest are in danger. This is another way to perceive the growth of age. Friends get sick and die. Others rise to unforeseen heights. Finally, inevitably, the gnarled survivors stand alone before they fall. 77 and counting, that's me. When I look into the mirror with my 250-degree magnification spectacles on, I see the sagging skin of my grandmother's face. Serena, not so serene. The nagger, the weeper, the wondrous maker of Hungarian delicacies, chirka paprikash, chicken paprika, the color of burnt orange and thick with sour cream, and uborka salata, cucumber salad, swimming in vinaigrette, and langosh, a fragrant fried yeast bread like Indian fry bread but not so heavy, slathered with butter and honey. Grandma Beck was softer than I am, prettier. Her hands were more agile and her face more fallen. Had I known as a child what I know now, I would have loved her better. I would have been forgiving. 
My face is more wrinkled than my grandmother's because I have lived in Montana for almost 45 years, choosing a life exposed to wind and sun and the cold, dry air of many winters, not to mention 50 years on and off of smoking. But the rough, brown, precancerous spots on my brow were not born of the West. They are souvenirs of a childhood spent sunning on Lake Michigan's beaches, days and years when suntans were marks of beauty, not danger. If I live past 90, I hope I will not fade gently as my grandma did, but will be transformed into the big-nosed, white-tressed, broomstick crone in my granddaughter Tilly's fairy tale book. Or maybe I'll look like the wife of Modoc Henry in Edward Curtis's portrait, a Klamath elder with roomy eyes under her beaded cap, deep-knit frown lines, and a mouth slightly twisted above chin furrows that spread neckward like channels in a river's delta. Now that I've lived my own losses and faced my own storms, I'm achieving that weathered look I once desired, and I'm not sure I want it. The knotty face of old growth does not seem as beautiful in me as it did in those unknown others. It would be better, I think, to look like Jane Fonda or Catherine Deneuve, not with an artificial mask such as Dolly Parton has constructed or, God help us, the face of Joan Rivers. No, just a hint of Botox on cheeks and mouth, a tasteful eye job, and the most sensitive possible lift of neck and chin. Yesterday in yoga class, we were practicing balance. It was the tree pose, pronounced vrikshasana, recommended for relief of sciatica and flat feet, both of which I suffer from. To do the tree pose, you must start from the mountain posture, tadasana. Feel your feet resting firmly on the floor, says our teacher. Raise your big toes and little toes at the same time. Release them and feel the insides and outsides of your heels. Now let your utter upper body stretch toward the sky. Open your collarbones, breathe. Relax your chin muscles and stomach, stomach muscles, breathe. Only after we learn to stand as mountains will it be possible to become a tree. We shift weight to our left legs. Now root your left leg into the earth, says our teacher. Imagine the roots going down, down, down. We lift right legs to rest on standing thighs and swivel lifted knees sideways, resembling herons or storks, but not any tree I've ever seen. The tree part comes when we spread arms horizontally at shoulder height, then fold them into a praying position and raise them above our heads. To keep balance, it is best to focus on a spot on the floor or slightly above the floor level and hold that focus as long as you can. And it helps to press the lifted leg into the standing leg while resisting with that standing leg. I push too hard, I tell our teacher, and then I fall over. Balance has never been my strong point. You always push too hard, pipes up my friend Judy, a writer and former ranch woman who, like me, will say bluntly what she thinks. See, says our teacher Serena, see how old Annick is, and she's still pushing too hard. Everyone titters, and I can't help but join them. Our class is packed with university students, and today we regulars are dwarfed by supple youth. By regulars, I mean a group I have christened the Yogettes, who have been coming to this five o'clock practice twice a week for six years. I share the honors of being oldest with a friend who is a retired English professor. 
Over the years, we have learned to accept the limits of our bodies while transforming them into vessels stronger, more flexible, and yes, more balanced. We can be downward-facing dogs, cobras, triangles, and trees. After the flat-on-your-back relaxation meditation called Shavasana, we fold our blankets, roll up our mats, and walk out the door ready to share a bottle or two of wine and a potluck gourmet dinner at one of our houses. We have, I think, found a recipe for growing old. First, spiral towards some balanced center. Next, repeat the disciplined actions until they are part of your circuitry. Try not to push too hard. And finally, know that each moment might be transformative. It is important to remember that after yoga practice, this recipe calls for jokes, and if you are me, a tall gin and tonic. <laughs> Growing old has nothing to do with living in the West, but perhaps it is easier for people like the yogettes to accept the necessary rot because we are rooted or transplanted by choice into a world where people are dwarfed by a landscape that is imminent and wild and dangerous. This end of summer day, the air is smoky from bitterroot forests on fire. In Glacier National Park, glaciers are melting before their time. I know, I know, eventually there will be new forests and valleys in the glacier's wake and rivers that cut through earth until bedrock is exposed. I will not live to see the outcomes of a planet grown warmer, but here in Montana, in a valley surrounded by mountains, watered by rivers, and sheltered with forests, my friends and I can still see the red shine of Mars in a blue-black sky. And this morning, as I took my labs out to pee on yellow meadow grass in the peach-colored dawn, I noticed a pile of bear scat under the thorn apple tree by the little house. If I am lucky tomorrow, as I have been in past Augusts, I might take my granddaughters by the hand and point out a bear cub standing upright under that thorn apple bush. He will be reaching for the sweet, pitted black fruit on the spiky branches and stripping them off with his teeth. This is a real bear, I will whisper, with real teeth. And we will shush our mouths so he won't be scared off. And we'll, we will keep our distance for the mother bear is surely on guard nearby. Like me, she is fattening for hibernation. The change of light tells us winter is coming, but summer's fruitful end is now. Thank you. <laughs>